Welcome back to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast, brought to you by Atticus Capital. I'm your host, Liam. Today we're going to get back to our regular type of podcast. We're going to do a little market coverage to start out, and then we're going to get into an interesting discussion that is becoming more prominent. But we'll get there when we get there. As we do, we'll start out looking at the S&P 500 index, which closed out this week at 3972.60. And less so important than the specific level, it's trading right under 4,000. We did touch 4,000 this week, but failed to maintain that more psychological level is the overall trend line. So if you go back and you're looking at the chart of the S&P, and you go back to Jan, or this is January 3rd of 2022, you'll see that between January 3rd and March 28th of 2022, there were two points that are important to note. It's the high set in January and then the second high set in March. And as a technical analyst, you put, okay, you take that point from January, the other point March, you do a little trend line, you extend that trend line out. And what we've seen is that that trend line has been holding extremely positive over the past, well, I don't know, almost a year or so, over a year, where again, on the 15th of August, 2022, we hit that trend line again. And what we're seeing as the index touches this trend line at the top end, it likes to reverse very significantly. So we saw a third touch on the 15th of August. We saw a fourth touch on the 12th of December. And what we're seeing now is another touch on the 17th of January. Now, if history rings true, the last four attempts at this trend line have failed, and we saw a significant sell-off in the market. But interesting now, and something as most technical analysts will tell you, is lower highs, lower lows. So you hit a high, you set a low. You hit a lower high, you set a second lower low. And that typically pertains to when the market is experiencing bear market tendencies, bear market pull. That's what you'll see in a bear market. You'll see lower highs and lower lows. But what we've seen recently is that the last low, the last trough we saw in the S&P 500 index was at 3769 on the 19th of December. This was maybe three weeks after we touched the trend line again and failed back in uh, uh, November, late November of 2022. You could obviously say maybe early December, but it's right around that period of time. But this most recent low is actually higher than the last low we saw on the 10th of October, where that low was at 3490 or right around 3500. So we have one low, well, let's take the last three. We'll take the most recent 
the one preceding the most recent, and then the one preceding that. So if you're looking at a chart, you'll see the first low was at 36.44, the second low was at 3,500, and the third low was at 37.69 or 37.70. So typically when you see this pattern of lower highs, is what we're seeing, right? If we're taking the three preceding lows, those three lows, and then we can correlate that with the three highs, we'll see the first high is at 43.30, the second high is at 4100, and then the third high is at 4015. And so what this means is that we saw one low set, which proceeded to the high, the second lower low, the second higher high, or lower high, excuse me, and then the third higher low, and the third lower high. So what this tells you is that in the S&P index, the price range is, well, condensed. And typically, what we'll call that pattern is a wedge or a pennant. When the further along the timeline you go, the shorter and the smaller the range of price movement becomes. And what you will see very often is that this is a consolidation period. This is a period where market participants are unsure. There's a little bit of ambiguity in the markets overall. So investors and traders trade within specific ranges and they wait until they get to a certain level for a breakout, a failed breakout or a breakout lower. Obviously you could take it in either direction. So we're back up at this trend line, which we have touched four times in the last year, right about there, going all the way back to January of 2022. So it's been a little bit over a year that we've been trading in this pattern. And it looks to me that the market is ready to make a decision on whether or not this pattern is going to continue. So continue the bear market lower, or if they're going to attempt, or I say there, I'm in discussing the market as a whole, if the market is going to attempt to break out, break above the trend line and start to recapture some of the highs previously set. Obviously the first one would be around 4,100. The second would be right around 4,250, 4,300. The third, you know, 46, 4,700, and then up near 5,000 at 4,800. So that's what we're seeing in the S&P index. So a, keep a keen eye on this index. If we start to see the S&P index get above 4050, so 4050, I think you might have a good chance of seeing it break above 4100. And if the strength and momentum continues and we set maybe another lower high or higher low, excuse me, and if we at all in any point in time set a higher high, that is a good indication that maybe this short bear or this bear market is going to see some short relief. So keep that in mind and keep an eye on the S&P index. The way that I set this up is I do a full look and a weekly chart. So I set up my bars on a weekly time frame, and then it's very simple. You just go from the January 2022 high, you start your trend line, you go through and make sure it touches each of the following highs set in March, August and November. And you'll see very clearly the correlation of price and trend. But that's a lot of time on the S&P, but I wanted to give that context to what we're looking at so that we can forward it to the rest of the indexes and the rest of the market. Next, moving on to the uh, NASDAQ. NASDAQ obviously has had a much rougher year, trading at 11,619 on the last close this Friday. 
The trend line is relatively similar, but it's a lot deeper. It's a lot more indicative of longer bear market and a more extensive bear market. So same type of principle remains with the NASDAQ index, although it seems less likely that this index will make that breakout move compared to the, uh, the S&P 500. Although as a trader myself, obviously nothing in any of my podcasts or anything that we write is, is investment advice. I'm never telling you to buy, sell, or hold an individual equity stock, commodity, bond, derivative, anything like that. You have to make those decisions on your own with the advice. If you are new and if you do not know what you are doing with a professional, with a financial advisor, or with a trader to get context to what it is that you're doing. So always keep that in mind. Not every trade is meant for every investor or every trader. But when I'm looking at something like the NASDAQ index, and I see the S&P is at a point in which it potentially could you have a breakout moment. Well, then I go over to the tech sector and I go, okay, well, these typically move with a little more momentum. There's a lot more growth. There's a lot more players in the tech heavy game. And we've seen a lot larger of a drawdown over the past year. So if we do see the S&P 500 index breaking out and we see that pattern replicate throughout the rest of the market and maybe some blue chip stocks, some tech heavy stocks, maybe some industrial stocks, then there might be some great opportunity in the tech sector if you want to take those types of trade on a short-term breakout of a trend. Now, of course, that takes some very specific stock picking capacity and stock picking capabilities. It also makes, you know, if you want to take something like this, it's a very risky trade, especially given you're basing that trade off of a separate index. So keep that in mind if you are looking at trading these types of companies and these types of moves. So again, no advice, but that's something that I would typically look at if we're starting to see this pattern of consolidation in the indexes and we're starting to see the first set of higher lows. A little bit of a different picture for the Dow Jones. Now the Dow Jones closed out the week at 33,375, but if you're also taking that same pattern that we put into the S&P and the NASDAQ of the trend line going all the way back to January of 2022 up until today, what you'll see is with the Dow Jones, it's very different where we see a few of the prior highs all underneath that trend line. Although, after the October lows, the Dow Jones already broke above this trend line. And what it did most recently was it retested the trend line above it and confirmed it as support. So that's a very interesting indicator that the Dow Jones clearly is much stronger than the S&P and the NASDAQ. And obviously, be seeing as from the recent all-time highs, the Dow Jones is only down 9.77%, not even in you know correction territory at this point. That there's potentially a lot of upside still left in the big industrial names. And now I could be completely wrong. We could see it go completely the opposite direction where the Dow Jones is above the trend line for a little bit of time. We see that maybe the S&P and the NASDAQ attempt to emulate the Dow Jones, break above that trend line and start to set that type of pattern as well. But 
seeing as if the market and the economy or the economy is still in such a weak state and then a lot of this will likely depend on earnings and the direction of interest rates from the fed that this could go south very quickly so if the dow jones falls back below this trend line and we see simultaneously the s p and the nasdaq fail to break out above their own trend lines that spells a fairly significant and problematic outcome for the entire market as a whole, where we can start to see things rapidly decelerate to the downside. So please keep that in mind. If you are looking to invest in this type of market, please keep that in mind, especially if you're trying to trade short term, either in equities or derivatives, because if you're looking at this type of market and you get enticed and induced into it and you say, okay, the Dow Jones broke out above this trend line, things look healthy, it could potentially run higher. And you're looking at the S&P and the NASDAQ and say, okay, they're coming up to their trend lines. If they break out, things can go buck wild. It could get buck nasty out in the markets. Yes, sure, you could take that point of view, but also make sure you understand that the downside there becomes extensively more problematic the further we get from the troughs. So just a little bit of context there. I know we're doing a lot of explaining, but I think that's important to note, especially for those who are either new or have not been really familiar with trading in these types of more volatile markets. And we can obviously look at the volatility index to get an idea also of what it is that the markets are telling us. And again, this is just the market. So you know, efficiency or not, there are a lot of caveats to what is occurring in the market. And the VIX index is at 19.86 under the 20. So very interesting. That gives us a little bit of an indication that there might be some strength, but again, that could obviously reverse. So I wouldn't take too much with uh, the indexed prices that we're seeing. Always take those with a grain of salt because they're not telling you the whole picture. Lastly, we do have the Russell 2000 index here. Same type of pattern, obviously a little different because there's a lot more companies in this index and it's a lot you know, smaller companies. So their effect is a lot different. So the, the Russell, it's stuck around this 18, 19, 2000 range. We'll see if it wants to break out again, same picture with the Russell. If it wants to break out with the rest of the indexes, we're likely going to look at maybe about 2000, maybe up to 2100, where we get to uh, prior support and resistance between the, you know, different ranges. You can see it if you have the chart open. We have a big range where supports around 2100, 2000. And then there's a short intermediate consolidation period during this leg lower where we see a high around, well, 2100 and the low of that range around 1900. And then we have that third category, that third range where we've been trading recently. So obviously there's two ranges to get above if the Russell 2000 breaks out to the top side. And of course, if it fails to do so, there is significant room to the downside all the way down to the 2020 lows. So if we do start to see indexes and markets realize a more negative consequence in the coming months, then we will clearly use the 2020 lows as a reference point. We're not close. We're not there. We're closer with the NASDAQ. But again, we'll make that analysis if we, if and when we get there. Natural gas, very interesting here. It's continuing its sell-off trading at $3.17. So it's now, where are we? We are at the lowest point for natural gas since February of 2021 which is very interesting. So natural gas selling off significantly from its 
recent all-time high at $10 for these future contracts. So significant $7 fall in the contract price of natural gas. A lot of background there, a lot in Europe, a lot in the US, a lot in, in Asia. We can get into that discussion, but that's not going to be the focus of today's podcast. But just wanted to let you know that oil, or not oil, natural gas is down significantly over the past year, especially over the past few months. Uh, oil trading at 8164 it's been trading in this range for a fairly substantial amount of time. We've been here all the way back since early, late November of 2022. We traded all the way down to 70. We are trading within this range continuously. So oil, nothing significant yet. If we do see oil get above 84, $85 a barrel, we will revisit this and same thing on the downside. If we fall under $70 a barrel, we'll come back and we'll revisit this and we'll also correlate that and take a look at the oil futures contracts. Taking a look at the precious metals, we have silver trading at $23.93. Uh, stalled out a little bit, under 25. We'll see what direction silver wants to go. It's got a nice strong recovery from the recent lows set back in July and October, between that sort of time frame where it was trading around $18.50. Silver's looking pretty good, but it looks like it is also slowing down. We'll get an idea in the next probably three or four months whether or not silver is gonna continue its trend upwards or if it's gonna reverse and head back down towards 20. Gold, very different picture here. Gold's had a robust recovery from the October lows that we saw where oil, or gold was at around 1650. 1,650, right around where we peaked out at the low end, where we troughed out. And now we're at 1928, 1,928 for gold. So it's very strong recovery in gold right now. And you can see how it correlates if we take a look at the dollar, which is now down to, uh, okay, we had the, the percentage chart. The dollar is now at 101.992. And you can see that if you look at the historic chart for gold in the dollar, there is a correlatory process here. Back on the 12th of December, 2016, the dollar peaked out and the, and the gold troughed. We did see this again, where the dollar peaked in March. Uh, this was on March 16th of 2020 and gold troughed at the same time where the dollar then fell about, what's that? Well, I can't, I'm not looking at the percentages here. Let me just remove this. Uh, gold went from about 1400 to 2000 in the same period of this March 16th and the March, or the, sorry, the September 26th, 22 is when the dollar breached. This was about 114 and it fell to 101. And in that same time period, we saw gold rise from about again, 1600 to about 1900. So interesting with gold, we'll see what direction it goes. There is a larger trend line that we're seeing in gold right around 1950, 1950. So if we do break above that level, it's very likely we can get back to 2000. But again, there's a lot of caveats with that. So keep that in mind. And that's where we are for the market update. We're already 20 minutes in. There's a lot of explaining, but I know we haven't covered the markets recently. So I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a more in-depth explanation to what it is that we're seeing in the markets as we come into the new year. Okay. So let's get to today's 
second discussion. The end of the dollar. The dollar's days are numbered. Or that's what you would be likely to see or made believe by this article and the conversation around this article from Bloomberg, which says here, Saudi Arabia has opened to settling trade in other currencies. Now, obviously, when this article came out, there was a litany of economists and sort of YouTube economists and a whole range of you know, dollar skeptics. I said, this is the end of the dollar. The Saudis are going to remove the petrodollar, this huge, enormous petrodollar thing that is holding up the entire world and the entire U.S. economy is built off of this. They're buying our treasuries. They need these treasuries and we need their dollars and we need their currency and so on and so forth. So let's get a little bit of this article out of the way. It says here, the Saudi Arabia is open to discussions about trade and currencies other than the U.S. dollar, according to the kingdom's finance minister. He said here, there are no issues with discussing how we settle our trade arrangements, whether it's in the U.S. dollar, whether it's in the euro, whether it's in the Saudi real. This was from Mohammed al-Jadan. And he was speaking in Davos. This is the big sort of political business elite that are convening in, in Davos, Switzerland and discussing whatever it is they discuss. So it goes on here and, and in the Bloomberg article, they mention Xi Jinping who visited Riyadh last year. And during that visit, the two countries agreed to boost coordination on energy policy and exploration. And Xi said during the period, China would make efforts to buy more oil from the Middle East and also wanted to settle trade in Yuan. And this brings in the whole discussion of the Petro Yuan and, you know, how the Chinese are going to sort of dethrone the dollar from international trade and especially from oil and, and Saudi Arabia. And we know that MBS and, and Biden's relationship is not well, it's not, you know, positive relationship. There's, it's very strange. Um, if anybody saw like this, the, uh, the handshaking or what was it like elbow bumping or fist bumping or whatever, when Biden went over there, okay, that's tertiary point, but I just thought that was kind of interesting or funny. And I, I want to get into this discussion because so much of it is dominated by the dollar skeptics and it's been a huge, I mean, this isn't new, obviously there's been people who are saying this is the end of the dollar since the 1970s in the 1980s, ever since we got off the gold standard. But when we're making the discussion on the petrodollar, which is really just a, a small fraction of what it is in the global economy, you know, the petrodollar is simply just euro dollars. In this truest sense, the petrodollar is a euro dollar component. It's a component of the euro dollar system. And it simply just isn't as big or as influential as people make it out to be. And we can obviously go back to the BIS report, which we do have pulled up today. But I'd like to go back to a Credit Suisse article published by Zoltan Pozar, who kind of started, or not started, but, but added to this conversation in a rather big way. This was during that early period of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, when there was a huge discussion of BRICS and, and the dollar was going to lose its focus and impact. And he wrote this article titled Bretton Woods 3. 
And he just kind of says in the initial introduction, you know, we are witnessing the birth of a Bretton Woods three. And if you aren't aware of the Bretton Woods system in the in forties that established sort of the dollars as the reserve currency of the world. And that that's a huge discussion in the post-World War II era, economic development, industrial capacity, all of that played into it. We have a much different economy now. That's a whole discussion in and of itself. So he says here, Bretton Woods through a new world monetary order centered around commodity-based currencies in the East that will likely weaken the Eurodollar sister system and also contribute to inflationary forces in the West. And now there's a caveat there because it says commodity-based currencies. There's an issue with commodity-based currencies in the modern era. The sustainability and susceptibility to increasingly tense and complex geopolitical relationships make commodity currencies a little less relevant and a little less stable than they're told to be relative to fiat currencies. So there's another big discussion within that. And Jeff Snyder in the past has gone through and, and sort of debunked this whole Bretton Woods three notion. But the only reason I'm bringing up this specific credit Swiss white paper from Zoltan Pozar is because this discussion has been around for a long time. The, you know, the, the U.S. dollar is going to be maybe replaced. It's going to be removed as the global reserve currency, which it won't, but regardless. And the reason I want to bring up this first Zoltan Pozar white paper is because he recently published another one. And he published this first Bretton Woods 3 white paper from Credit Suisse. You can find it here. It's just titled Bretton Woods 3. You can look up if you're in Google or DuckDuckGo or Safari or whatever it is. Just titled Bretton Woods 3 Credit Suisse Zoltan Pozar. P-O-Z-S-A-R. It's posted on the 7th of March 2022 through Credit Suisse's Investment Solution and Products Global. He also wrote another article recently titled The Future of the Monetary System. This is also from Credit Suisse. And it says here, and there's a very important highlight. And it says here, for the foreseeable future, there are no clear candidates to replace the U.S. dollar as a lead currency. Neither the euro nor the renminbi qualify as alternative currency hegemons. Meanwhile, the creation of a global currency remains illusory. That would require an intensely cooperative geopolitical environment. And so that's that's the important thing to point out. When we're discussing something like a, the notion that the dollar is going to be replaced by, you know, this BRICS commodity currency, which... There's a lot of individuals out there that have been looking at BRICS and they've been looking at this multipolar world order that is arising from the East and from the global South and correlating that and assuming because that is occurring, that means the dollar is going kaput. It's going kapui. But what seems to be the issue here is those, and, and yeah, I think Peter Schiff is in this camp. And I think there's a, there's an intrinsic problem when making the assertion that the U S dollar is going to be replaced at some point. And it's not understanding the true extent to which this current Euro dollar system 
remains a gargantuan force in global economics. And it's not just the dollars, it's the euro dollars. It's, it's this entire system. It's every single you know, facet of every country's lives. If you want to make it in any meaningful way, you're going to need to participate in the euro dollar system. If you need, if you want your banks to operate, you know, efficiently, if you need your the entire system, if you want your finances to work, if you need debt assurances, if you need to, whatever it is that you need to do, you're going to have to work in the euro dollar system. And it's not because of just us hegemon, you know, hegemonic power. It's, at this point, it's just intrinsic in the system. And it's going to take a gargantuan effort from most powers on planet Earth to even slowly wean themselves off of this global monetary system. Because it's not just the U.S. government that's maintaining this system. It's every bank, every international bank on the planet operates within this system and is a participant. And the Petro Yuan conversation goes all the way back to the 70s, where you had the war with Arab states and Israel. We had the embargo. We had the, all the trade nonsense. And there was sort of this the secret deal to price Saudi Arabian oil in dollars. And they buy treasuries and the U.S. would send them weapons. And that arrangement has been ongoing ever really since the, the late 70s. But again, the petrodollar system is simply just an extension of the eurodollar system, which I always want to come back to this quote from the BIS. This was in their debt. This was the, uh, the dollar debt and FX swaps and forwards is huge missing and growing. That was this report. We've covered it plenty of times and I might've just lost my, no, I didn't. And it says here, the quote is, Dollar dominance is striking in this FX market segment, greater than in any other aspect of dollar use. As a vehicle currency, the US dollar is on one side of 88% of outstanding positions for $85 trillion. An investor or bank wanting to do an FX swap from, say, Swiss francs into Polish Zolti would swap francs for dollars and then dollars for Zolti. So this system of Euro dollars extends far beyond oil. And again, this is simply just discussing the FX swaps and forwards market, you know, FX swaps, currency swaps and forwards in the same respect. There is an entire other system. A lot of the, if you're trading in oil, you're also using these derivatives to hedge your positions, yada, yada, yada. You get the picture. You're also including interest rate swaps, so on and so forth. So I think there's a, a typical misconception of just how unbelievably complex this entire system is. And I will be completely honest. I am no expert in global derivatives or monetary system, I, along with anybody else who's trying to get into this sphere, I'm trying to learn as much as I can as I go along. I've got plenty of time. I'm still in, uh, I'm still in undergrads. <laughs> I feel I have a little bit of cushion room to clearly iron out some details in my understanding of this. But what I can garner so far is that a lot of the discussion about 
petrodollars and dollar collapsing and this is the end of the dollar. It's, it's not nuanced. It's simply black or white. The dollar, people are saying, governments around the world are trying to stop using the dollar. They're de-dollarizing. And, and in some extent, in some ways, that's very true. And there's nothing wrong with that. A country can say, well, we want to try to build up our own economic cooperations among like-minded cultural states that we share values with and we want to do more trade with them. So we're going to set up a, a standard, an exchange standard upon, you know, among us and among our, you know, various different countries and we'll try to use our own currencies and our own goods so that we can not have outside influence of countries and systems that we don't agree with for whatever reason. And that's totally fine. I understand that. And I think that's probably a good thing. But regardless, that doesn't mean, and you can't necessarily take that specific set of events and then assume because that's occurring, that dollar dominance around the world is at its end. And like Zoltan said, even Zoltan Pozar himself, who was Bretton Woods 3, BRICS, commodity currency, said for the foreseeable future, there are no clear candidates to replace the U.S. dollar as a lead currency. Neither the euro nor the renminbi qualify as alternative currency hegemons. Meanwhile, the creation of a global currency remains illusory. That would require an intensely cooperative geopolitical environment. And we're not close. We're not there yet. Maybe someday in the future that will come, but it's not here. And there's even more to this. There was an article published in Real Clear Markets by Jeffrey Snyder titled, They're All Symptoms of the Same Dollar Disease. This was back in 2019, July 19th of 2019. Jeff wrote this big article, this big sort of report article discussing a lot of what we're talking about today. And there's a couple of quotes and a couple of segments I want to read from this. And it ties all the way back into what we're discussing today about petrodollars and, and petro yuan, which was that attempt and the idea from the Chinese to start to price Saudi Arabian oil for the Chinese and East Asia market in Chinese renminbi. And I remember during even that discussion, there was a lot of, you know, economists and armchair economists, I guess you could say, who were saying, oh, this is the end of the dollar. The dollar's not going to live any longer. They're going to start pricing oil in Chinese yuan and, and the dollar's going to be booted out. And that obviously hasn't occurred, but regardless. And so here's, here's a couple of segments here. It says, in early 2018, the international press was abuzz about the so-called petro yuan. I forgot this is exactly what he mentions. The launch of commodity derivatives pricing crude oil in Chinese renminbi. The Chinese would undermine the U.S. dollar and do it through OPEC. A flood of stories appeared declaring the petrodollar's days as done. This was 2019, remember. The Chinese weren't attempting to replace the dollar, merely to alleviate some of the oppressive pressures of the euro dollar. Indeed, there are no they are no closer because the petrodollar isn't a real thing. The euro dollar is because that is what it's all Oh, sorry. <laughs> the euro dollar is, got a comment there, because that's what all the banks use. You don't replace the dollar by replacing the euro dollar. You have to replace the way banks do things. So, sorry, the, the setup of this article, <laughs> this, at least the sentence got me a little confused. And maybe my highlights covered up the comments, so my structuring was a little wonky. 
But I think it's important, this, this section here, discussing the way the Chinese are operating with this, you know, yuan, renminbi, petro yuan. And a lot of it comes down to simply euro dollar shortage in the global economy. That's forcing countries to try to find alternative means in which they can alleviate some of this funding problems. This is what we've been seeing recently in, in China, where they're selling U.S. treasuries and not selling U.S. treasuries because, you know, confidence or they, you know, the, the world is shifting away from treasuries and U.S. debt. A lot of it comes from they just need the dollars. They need the currency. They need the the dollars to operate in the euro dollar space so that they can buy, trade, sell, and do whatever it is that they need to do to operate and maintain their economic system. And there is a shortage of euro dollars. It goes again, all the way back to the other discussion we had about how the Fed doesn't look outside the bounds of the U.S. border. And they don't pay attention to the outside problems demanding dollars in the global economy that affect what's occurring inside the United States. And this is just another extension of that discussion. I'll go through this, this section because I, I read it incorrectly. Indeed, they are no closer because the petrodollar isn't a real thing. The euro dollar is because that's what all of the banks use. You don't replace the dollar by replacing the euro dollar. You have to replace the way bankers do things. And that, I think, comes down and is the crux of the entire discussion about dollar dominance, the end of the dollar, the dollar's days are done, the petro yuan, the BRICS, commodity currency, Bretton Woods 3. All of those discussions, in some very real sense, have validity. Each one of them makes sense. You can go, okay, the Chinese are attempting to price some oil in China, or in Chinese yuan, or renminbi. The Russians post-war, after the sanctions didn't really operate the way that we were, they were intended to operate, the Russians are going to pull away from energy trade with Western Europe and the Western and the West in general, so there's going to be a lot more economic cooperations between Russia, China, India, the Global South, the Middle East, and Africa. All of those things are true in some real sense, and they have validity. But the biggest misconception when it comes to what, you know, it, the extent to which people understand what euro dollars are, it, it varies. And I, I would likely argue that there aren't many people who don't study this specific sector of economics, simply aren't necessarily aware of euro dollars. And, you know, a little bit of personal context to that discussion and argument is, you know, in class, I've discussed with professors in the classroom setting, just asking questions about euro dollars and it seeming there's a, obviously my professors understand a little bit of what this is, but some professors don't. Most of the students and my peers have no idea what a euro dollar is. You know, they couldn't really tell you, uh, you know, that, that might be an indictment of Western education, but regardless, this system isn't simply just saying, you know, a euro dollar isn't just a, a bill. In, in some real sense, it's a network, much like the internet is a network. And much like, you know, you can't really replace the internet with whatever it is that you're going to replace it with. I think that's the best comparison that you can draw 
from what it is the euro dollar system is it's a, a bank centered monetary centered network and you can imagine it like the internet the internet of monetary economics the internet of monetary systems and when you're when the assertion is that the US dollar is going to be replaced and that this entire system is going to replace it, you're as insinuating in some real sense the end of this entire global monetary banking network that's existed since the 50s. And it, it simply isn't as easy as saying the Chinese are going to price some elements of oil and renminbi so they can alleviate some of the dollar pressures, the euro dollar pressures they're experiencing at home. And, and you use that to argue that the entire system itself is going to collapse. It's a much broader and much more deep and complex discussion and a couple of events bringing about the downfall of the euro dollar or more traditional, traditionally, the dollar centered system. So that's where I'm going to end it off today. We could obviously go into <laughs> so many different segments of this discussion and, and head down the rabbit hole and go back into the old writings of the Federal Reserve and other economists from days gone. And we could continue this discussion in, in much more depth. But that's I wanted to lay out this sort of broad bearing, overarching sort of umbrella understanding, at least from my perspective, of why it seems a little hot off the press. <laughs> in some real sense, to say that because these certain events have occurred in the last, say, maybe 10 years, that the end of the entire global monetary order is just inches from our nose. So with that being said, and as always, thank you for sticking around. I always hope that these podcasts are helpful, useful, and carry with them something from which inspires you to learn more about money, markets, or macroeconomics. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you all on the next one.